Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Content Confessions. As always, it is Hershey Staines 815, a.k.a. Stone Samurai, joined with my brother Steve, a.k.a. Stu, coming at you on a July 28, 2021. Steve, how are you doing tonight? Hey, Hersh, how's it going, man? Not too shabby, not too shabby. Um, So today's episode is kind of... Uh, a bit of a tale of the past and a uh, telling of the future. And it's the reason pivotal. I say that, what's that? It's pivotal. Yeah, very pivotal. There you go. It's a very great way of putting it. Um, flexing that college education. Huh. So, <laughs> so today's episode, we're going to be doing um, a bit of a deep dive. And it's going to also kind of be an overall tie-in with uh, past episodes and with the future vision that we have for the entire podcast. Uh, this episode and our entire podcast in general, we always go into um, ideas like uh, socialist governments, the success of them, and as well as the failures, which sometimes, um, and, and a lot of the times as we're starting to find out, are usually uh, helped and exacerbated by the U.S. Uh, government as well as U.S.-backed intelligence agencies. Um, you will, We also go into the rise and backing of right-wing authoritarianism, dictatorships, um, as well as just the U.S. intelligence and military uh, forces in general. And most importantly, in this episode, we'll also reflect on some of these ideas, uh, such as wealth inequality, land rights for indigenous people, um, labor unions, women rights, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but more importantly, today's episode is going to be a tale of two men who come from middle-class backgrounds and kind of have a upbringing, if you will, that's a bit quiet, a bit boring uh, from a historical context. Not really much goes on. But these uh, middle-class, basically fail sons, is the best way of putting it, eventually become uh, two men who will change the fate and the the feeling of an entire nation and it's going to be echoing the devastation that is happening within Central and South America during this time period, whether it be from within its own government and its own people or through U.S. uh, backed interference. But with that, I'm going to pass it over to my brother because I'm sure he has a bit of an intro he would like to use. Yeah, just really quickly, I thought you put that all really well, Hirsch. That was a great way of not only summarizing what this episode is looking to do, but kind of what this whole entire series has been trying to do. <clears throat> I think even with the current events that are going on, it, it's pretty obvious that a lot of the stuff that we're talking about still has re, you know repercussions to this day. And so I think an important thing to keep in mind as we're talking not only in today's episode, but the episodes going forth is that we have sources for this kind of thing. A lot of the time, you know, in the Gladio episodes, in particular, we often felt the need to say, hey, you know, this isn't just conspiracy theory shit. Like, just because there's a conspiracy doesn't mean it's conspiracy theory. And one of the ways we were able to what oversight there was of covert operations by the United States, whether that's the CIA, NSA, or other organizations within that um, rubric, I guess you would call it, we know a lot of that information because of something called the Church Committee. And I definitely encourage people to look up more information on it because there's even more than what we're just going to be talking about today and we'll kind of maybe talk back we'll bring it up here and there as we're talking about 
stuff that's going to be coming up in different countries because this is a, a far-reaching um, information that came out. It was a U.S. Select, uh, U.S. Senate, excuse me, committee in 1975 that investigated abuses by the CIA, the NSA, the FBI, the IRS, and other governmental uh, organizations. Um, this is all taking place right at the time after Watergate. There's a heavy distrust not only of um, government organizations, but starting to see some of that distrust coming of the media in general. A lot of the stuff that unfortunately gets taken advantage of, of things like Q and that kind of stuff nowadays. But like we talked about in that episode about Q, there's a lot of truth behind the stuff that gets twisted by basically what's a cult in, in modern day Q understanding. Um, a lot of the revelations that came out were stuff like Operation MK Ultra you know, where it actually did come out that they were trying to brainwash people, that they were drugging and torturing people, um, trying to understand mind control and that kind of stuff. You had COINTELPRO, that was the um, surveillance and infiltration of left-wing political and other civil rights organizations. Um, something that was called the Family Jewels, funnily enough, that was uh, a set of reports that basically detailed like, the activity that was going on, especially when it came to assassinating foreign leaders. Or oh, support. dude, I, I thought that was the Gene Simmons show. Fuck. Hey, it is. <laughs> and then another one of the famous ones, especially that gets tied up in Q and all that kind of shit, is Operation Mockingbird, which, Hirsch, you, you know a little bit about. But that's basically the idea that there's a, a systematic propaganda effort that involves domestic, foreign journalists, basically as CIA assets, and that U.S. news organizations are providing cover for CIA and governmental activity, you know, quote unquote, deep state. Without a doubt. And I'm glad that you brought up that term because that's a term I've used before. And I and I used it intentionally just to kind of plant that term into people's minds if they haven't heard it in a while, because that was a term that was used a lot, especially during the 90s, early parts of 2000s. And then it just kind of uh, disappeared and then just became um, big government in general. It all just kind of became generalized and, and pushed into this. Uh, one major idea um, <clears throat> to the to the liking of certain people, but nevertheless, I think I think one of the reasons I've enjoyed talking about um, this era and investigating this era even further than my basic knowledge I had before going into it is that this is basically the time where all of the the hippie movements and even the far right movements within the United States start gaining these conspiracy theories, right? Because of these reports that are coming out and because of the operations that were taking place that we've talked about in previous episodes and that we're going to talk about today, that distrust that my brother had just mentioned previously was something that was, gr that was growing on both sides. Because, I mean, usually with, uh, with media manipulation, it's allowed to where one side is able to feel as if they're winning from the uh, content that is being pushed out there. But because of the uh, just general distrust, it was, you know, I, I hate to use this term, but both sides were basically feeling it like, hey, we're not buying your bullshit because. Well, and what's interesting about that, Hirsch, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no, you're fine. Go ahead. You're, I can come back to it. No, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. But an important thing to keep in mind is like, this was coming a lot of the time. There is a little bit from the right, but it's mainly coming from not only the left, but liberals who are, who are against the, the CIA, against the, against the other organizations doing all this stuff kind of dirty, you know, what, what has come to be called the dirty wars, you know, covert actions. It was liberals on these committees too. It, it's not like the current era, you know, where because of Russia, 
you know, every liberal is like a super fan of the FBI and the CIA because they thought Trump was going to get it. You know, like people, even liberals thought of it differently. So, yeah, you do have it coming from a lot of different sides that just trust. And you're absolutely right. No. And, and the thing is, too, is the, the reason that was happening is because a lot of these um, nationalist war hawks that were, that were resonating with the United States, they were seeing this propaganda that was getting put on TV. It was like, our boys over in Vietnam and the Korean War are over there tearing, tearing those people apart. And, you know, do your best and we're doing our best and we're going to win the war, boys. And their friends would come back home or family members would come back home if they were lucky enough to come back home. And they would tell them about really what was happening over there. It wasn't about um, fighting soldiers and, and doing your typical uh, army of one commercials that they that they put out there. They were literally getting sent in and being told to wipe out entire villages, even at the disgruntlement of infantrymen who most of the time probably didn't even like the people that they were trying to say that they didn't want to kill. Um mm-hmm which is a very telling thing. You know, these are people who are angry and obviously wanted to go uh, protect their country or so, you know, that's the idea, but you know, they would come back home and that would happen. And then also the other part, uh, and funny enough, Russia kind of ties into uh, this distrust is, you know, the advancements that Soviet Russia was making, um, not just in terms of the space race, but just technology in general. One of the things that a lot of people forget, and I always bring this up, is the majority of technology that we're using today, whether it be um, heart replacement surgery, which was something created by the Soviets, cell phones, something created by the Soviets, um, numerous other things. Uh, these were all technologies that were starting to be made, created, and uh, thought of through a Soviet Union. And the United States, whether you know you were leftist or right, it was very upsetting because that sense of nationalism still deeply resonates, whether you consider yourself a liberal or a conservative. It's still there. There's that still basis. That's why a lot of times you'll see liberals excuse um, police brutality or military excessive force because you know it's the idea of protecting uh, sovereignty of America, the sovereignty of the U.S., even in countries that aren't the United States. So I just wanted to quickly add that in, even though that wasn't quickly. Sorry. <laughs> no, you're all good. Now, in another part of the church committee's revelations or, or unearthings was something called Project Shamrock, which uh, kind of portends to a little bit of maybe what we'll talk about if we ever do a future episode about telecommunications and, and uh, government spying and that kind of stuff, where Project Shamrock was basically where from 1945 until the early 70s at least, telecommunication companies were sharing their information with the NSA. Um, that information was fed into what was called the watch list, which is something that they found out about in the church committee. Um, the NSA had a list of basically millions of names, a lot of which were U.S. citizens, or thousands of which, maybe not a lot, but this was a lot of famous people or political activists like everybody like liberals like Walter Mondale to actor uh, Gregory Peck. Like it's a, it's a pretty weird list, but they were basically <coughs> keeping tabs on communications and, and the going about of anybody that they thought was interesting to keep an eye on. It's a lot like what Snowden uncovered with uh, his global, you know, with about the stuff going on with the global surveillance and, and communication networks that way. <coughs> well, even recently here in the United States with the reports that came out that Donald Trump was spying on, uh, Democrats and specific journalists from CNN and MSNBC. Yeah, and then you have Obama expanding like drone programs and and like intelligence gathering programs that Bush had started. So like 
this stuff is is no matter what party, it ends up just expanding out further and further. And then the executive branch and the CIA and the intelligence community just basically tries to cover their ass the entire time. Yep. Plausible and, deniability, as they call it. Yeah. And so what gets sent out is the, the church committee publishes a lot of material. Some of this stuff gets held back. Some of the stuff that does get held back is a lot of stuff about Chile itself, particularly that we'll be talking about. There's only... Um, one of the case studies that they had produced out of seven that gets released entitled Covert Action in Chile, 1963 to 1973. A lot of what we'll be talking about today, the rest were actually kept secret at the CIA's request. So even though the church committee is putting out a lot of information that the CIA and other groups aren't liking, that they aren't really a fan of, they are able to control some of the information that comes out. But a lot of the stuff that I talked about, we'll be talking about in future episodes, but I at least wanted to talk about the idea that part of the release of the final report was something that, you know, they released called the alleged assassination plots involving foreign leaders. And one of the guys that were, that's mentioned in this list is somebody that we'll be talking about, but also a couple other familiar names. And these were alleged attempts, you know, alleged quote unquote, to assassinate different foreign leaders that included uh, Patrice Lumumba, you know, of Zaire, Rafael Torrelio of the Dominican Republic, who actually probably wouldn't have been too bad to take him out if they had wanted to. He was kind of a douche. Um, DM of South Vietnam, a guy we'll bring up today, General Rene Schneider of Chile, and of course Castro, who they were always going after. Uh, Gerald Ford, who was president at the time, you know, wanted them to withhold this information, but you know he wasn't able to, and so they ended up releasing that information, and he had to issue a new executive order that would be updated by Reagan uh, to ban U.S. sanctioned assassinations of foreign leaders, which we know is pretty much bullshit because we're still continuing it to this day. Yep. Yeah, and we'll be coming back to different revelations of the church committee as we go along, but I at least wanted to give a little bit of an introduction um, to the idea of it, that, you know, we're not just making this kind of shit up, that, you know, this is actual, not everything that we're talking about maybe have been proven by stuff found in the church committee, but we're not just pulling these things out Always make your own judgment. Always do your own research. But we are basing this on stuff that has been publicly admitted to it, essentially. Well, and because of the church committee, there was eventually, um, you know, further reports that were done down the road that we're also going to be talking about. I mean, I, I know I myself am going to be bringing up a report that was done later in 2011, and I'll go into the details of that when we cross that bridge. Yeah, and like... People have com have said that like the church committee's work basically paved the way for September 11th, you know, because they the CIA couldn't do what it needed to do, you know, quote unquote, and that they betrayed the CIA agents and that kind of shit. But really, it was the only time that there's been any kind of oversight or any kind of accountability when it comes to the U.S. intelligence network that, as we had talked before, was basically established after World War II in basically 1948, where the OSS uh, becomes the Central Intelligence Agency. Maybe it was 47, excuse me. Um, National Security Act of 47, that's right. Didn't really say that the CIA could conduct covert operations, but there's a section that gives them like a vague idea of what they're able to do. They kind of decide that the NSC, the National Security Council, is going to be overseeing all this kind of stuff. And that, But their main mission at that time, you know, is stop communism in, in Western Europe. And we talked a little bit, Hirsch, remember in Gladio about Italy 
and then them getting involved in that 48 election where they didn't want the communists to come to power. Correct. That's one of the first, you know, covert operations that the CIA is kind of given credit for taking over. Um, the NSC is supposed to be one of their, they, they form these different panels to provide oversight. And sorry if this gets kind of in the weeds here. Um, it's going to be a, a lot of different committees that I might bring up or a lot of names that aren't as famous, but I'm just trying to give an idea of what the supposed oversight was supposed to be like and what it was in reality, which was not much oversight at all, <clears throat> not much accountability at all. And that led to the church committee needing to take action where you have these different panels that are, are made up of, you know, important individuals. A lot of time it's chiefs, of, chiefs uh, you know, army chief, different people, joint chiefs of staff, different parts of the NSA, different parts of the director of central intelligence, that kind of thing where, you know, they're going to be kept informed of operations. They're going to give, um, they're going to give input on these operations and that maybe they'll have some final say on what goes on, but at every turn, they're pretty much ignored. Different presidents create different memos, different objective, different documents about how this kind of stuff is going to go on. It's actually Eisenhower who later on is like, hey, we need to get more control over this because he's seen a lot of what's going on with CIA under his administration. We had talked to Hirsch about you know, Eisenhower being involved in, in stuff that was going on in Cuba, but also um, going on in, uh, in stuff with the banana wars and that kind of thing too, where he has to eventually take responsibility for what the CIA is doing, but he doesn't always know what they're doing until they kind of do it. Um, one of those examples was when like uh, there was a bombing of a vessel by the CIA during some kind of CIA operation where he didn't know that it was going to happen until they had already done it. And he was kind of pissed about it. And so they're trying to create these special groups, these special subcommittees to keep an eye on, on things, but it never really does anything to, to control it. And eventually this kind of information gets leaked out. Um, it gets put out into, into the media, into different books. And so they, in the, in the 60s, they end up changing the names to a couple of different things to try to keep it more secretive. And you actually have Nixon and Kissinger taking the, the biggest actions then at that point to keep all this kind of stuff secretive. And they're going to be the main characters that we kind of talk about from the United States perspective when we talk about this episode today. The, the horrible duo uh, of both Nixon and Kissinger. Um, may they both burn in hell, Kissinger, at some point, hopefully soon. Yeah, um, fingers crossed. But yeah, Nick Kissinger was basically charged with overseeing all covert operations on Nixon's behalf, and he kept out what was called the 40 Committee because of some memo name. They were trying to keep it hush-hush by naming it like the 40 Committee, but it sounds like a bunch of guys who are drinking really big beers. Uh, <laughs> sorry, that was dumb. <clears throat> But he basically was able to keep the 40 committee out of the loop on pretty much anything that was really important or sensitive. And so the, a lot of the time, these committees just didn't even meet because they weren't getting any kind of input. They were useless. And we'll see the repercussions of that kind of activity today where the CIA, where you have national security advisors, um, other officials like Kissinger, a president like Nixon, who are totally willing to do whatever and what that horrible combination can fulfill. Cause basically, even if you have uh, an advisor and a president who doesn't want it to happen, the CIA pretty much does what they please at this point. They probably still do to some degree. Um, but you see how terrible that, that recipe is when all three, when all, not necessarily all three, but all parties are willing to, to engage in this different stuff. And mm -hmm. that's what 
ended up making the church committee have to form was all this kind of stuff that we'll be talking about in the next episodes coming here about the really dirty shit that the United States was up to when it came to Latin America, but you know, not only Latin America, but the rest of the world in general. And I just have to say that when you, when you made that joke about the 40 committee, that was funny. All right. But I I just want to add that ever since you said that now, all I can picture is just like Nixon rocking like some King Cobra and just like fucking going hard doing the Futurama thing. Wearing, uh, (laughs) wearing some, uh, Chino, Chino pants and uh, <laughs> I'm back, Betty. Yeah, exactly. Like Futurama Nixon. Um, but I, I, the one thing I wanted to ask you, okay, because this is one thing that I was thinking about when I was looking at um, whether you want to call it a success or failure of things like the church committee. Um, do you think that it's possible that these committees were purposely set up to? Um, not just be uh, in such a subjective word, but bad, right? But purposely bad, but also to kind of like diverge some of the accountability. Because if you think about it, right? So, like with the National Security Council, um, because of that, you have the, these panels of, you know, Joint Chiefs of Staff and, you know, all these different people from throughout the military as well as intelligence forces, okay? And their quote, advising the United States president. And throughout the history, as you had mentioned, there was different panels that were created that would be able to not necessarily overstep the president, but kind of sidestep the president, if that makes a better uh, uh, picture for it. Yeah, because they're basically going around any kind of executive or other appointee. Well, and I mean, you know, one of the best examples, and the reason I bring that up, right, is like one of the best examples is after 9-11 when the secret panels that eventually gets created under the, the Bush and Cheney administration where they oper- they start operation for a program that allows them to kill anybody, even an American citizen, for being considered a threat or being part of state-sponsored terrorism. Um, well, even the, non-sponsored, every even non-state sponsored, like um, basically the Patriot Act is going to overturn any kind of oversight that there might have been at, that was formed by the church committee. So any kind of uh, you talked about a success or a failure, any success that the church committee did have was completely undone by the time it was probably undone in, in steps, obviously, but it was completely undone by the time of the Patriot Act. Yeah, but I just I, I'm kind of curious because like like I said, I just I feel like. From the very beginning, uh, things like the church committee were something to appease the masses and kind of give you that pyrrhic victory. Um, no, I know what you mean. No, and to, to answer your question, like I think what those things do, and it kind of steps into my um, senior thesis I did back at school, is that a lot of the times when you have these reforms or when you have oversight, it's done by people who want to reform or, or look over what's happening, right? They don't want to stop or they don't want to change it. They just want to make sure they have more control over it, that it's done in a way that doesn't upset the public as much, like you said, right? You want to appease the public enough to think that, okay, people are being held accountable. There are going to be people looking over their shoulder, you know, who watches the watchers, you know, that kind of shit. Yeah. Um, that, that is definitely always a part of what the elite wants to do. That's where liberals come in a lot of the time because they provide a way for the elite to, that's why the elite keeps them around, right? Um, that's why they're often part of the elite. Uh, they are there to add a, 
a veneer of accountability of people who care enough to hold people accountable, but still want those programs in place like the CIA, right? Like if you're talking about a true leftist perspective, it would be to abolish it and to not even have an organization that acts that way, not to have better oversight. Um, so it depends where you're even starting from, whether you even see it as a, uh, a true success or not. Yeah. Because, I mean, look, it, at the end of the day, uh, and not to steer too far off, but I think it's important to talk about this really quick since we're on the subject. I think, I think it is important to make that distinction, right? Because, uh, you know, the, the one big debate in leftism at the moment, right, is the complete abolition of police, okay? Um, you know, there are some people on uh, the left who believe that the police, enti- the police entirely need to be just removed. Um, and then there are some people on the left who believe that the police should still uh, be kept in place and they think things like body cams or like anything in between, right? But whatever argument you may have, all right, there's an argument to be made there, all right, just, just for sake of devil's advocate for a quick moment. But unequivocally, there is without a doubt no complete reason or explanation or logic behind keeping uh, these intelligence forces like the CIA or FBI, especially under the ways that they have operated for the past, well, ever since their creation. Um, there, there, there's no justification for it. None, in, in my opinion. People can disagree all they want to, but that, that's just the way that I feel. The other argument, no. <clears throat> I, I, I can have that for another day, but when it comes to the FBI and CIA, I 100% agree, agree with the sentiment of removing them entirely. No, and, and even if you agree with the idea of having some kind of security apparatus that you know helps you defend against like people plotting overseas, like at this point, you have to just destroy the CIA because it's become such a corrupt, or it has always been such a corrupt organization that there's really no reforming it. And so even if, if you aren't in favor of complete abolition, that's the same way I feel about the police. Like, even if you aren't in favor of complete abolition, I am in favor of complete abolition. But even if you aren't, you kind of have to just start over. Indeed. Because it's well, so poison to begin with that even if you agree with the idea of what it is, it, it has drifted so far away from that original intent that you just have to kind of start over if you are going to have that kind of system. Well, and the thing is, too, right, It's and, and I want to use this moment to call out the bullshit because, like, the the always the, the response for um, excusing police brutality and just like the complete ne- uh, neglect that they have when it comes to like upholding their oath. Um, actually, you know what? We'll we'll jump into it. I'll save that for another day. Okay, I'll save that no, for another day. No, like it's 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 an overall conversation, but I I think if we're gonna get into Chile proper, we just wanted to do a quick overview of just a little bit of what we had talked about in the beginning of the, of the series kind of leading up to the events that we're going to start focusing on in the sixties and seventies, moving into the Pinochet dictatorship. Um, pretty much like we talked about, I know we haven't mentioned Chile maybe specifically, but you know, you have a history before the Spanish were able to get there where you have, you know, humans, indigenous peoples living in there for tens of thousands of years. Um, you have the Incas briefly extending their empire into what is now Chile, but you have a group that's called the Mapuche. I'm really sorry if that's the wrong pronunciation. I've only seen it written. Um, 
but they're basically the the uh, the indigenous peoples who are able to resist attempts by the Inca to subjugate, even though they don't really have an organized um, state. And they're able to also keep that independence a lot going through Spanish rule and even current and what you consider modern day um, Chilean rule, where they're kind of a, a separate group that, that has their own point of view, that has their own ideals, that has their own culture, that has their own interests when it comes to stuff going on in Chile. So I just wanted to mention that really quickly. And then you have the Spanish um, coming in like they did in a lot of places. Magellan is actually the first person um, to step foot in Chile, if you want to consider uh, as the first European. Um, the next guy who comes is this guy, Diego de Almagro, who comes with other conquistadors from Peru. They're able to kind of start taking over Chile in 1540. This guy who was one of Pizarro's lieutenants, uh, de Valdivia, de Villa, excuse me, um, founds the city of Santiago, which is the capital of Chile. Um, they didn't really find all the gold and silver they wanted, surprise, surprise, but they're able to take advantage of agriculture that they can build and it becomes a part of the Spanish empire. They, like we had talked about previously with the Spanish empire, we have all the issues there where you have this hierarchy that ends up being um, placed with the Spanish Europeans on the top, people of mixed descent, the mestizos, and then you have the indigenous people and black people at the very bottom. That hierarchy takes its form in social and economic class. And we saw that story play out again and again. We don't have to get too much into the specifics here. What you have in an independence movement, just like we talked about, you have eventual civil war where they fight um, other countries, but they're also fighting within over who's going to rule, where boundaries are going to be, whose interests are going to be um, put forward. You had the liberals versus the conservatives, all that stuff we talked about before. You eventually have what becomes an oligarchy, oligarchy by the 20s where, you know, before the 20s, excuse me, you have huge differences in, in wealth. Around that time, though, there starts to come a middle and working classes who are able to put programs of reform in with a reformist president. You also have leftist groups starting to arise. But then you see a military coup happen in the 20s. Again, it's a lot of the stuff we talked about with Latin America before. But where we really want to talk about is starting to get towards the what we consider the more modern modern era, the late 20th century. They do eventually bring democracy back into Chile where the, the military dictatorships end for a little while. You have the radical party at the time who is kind of a coalition of what you would say are like center left people, maybe with the center, who are able to dominate politics for a certain amount of time. One of the groups that kind of used to rule in that coalition are the Christian Democrats. In 1964, they are able to win an absolute majority. They, the fray, the guy who who is able to win that that um, that election, excuse me, in his administration, they actually do put some social and economic reforms into place, uh, whether it's housing or education, agrarian reform, a lot of the stuff that we talked about, whether you know rural unions, rural unionization of workers. Sorry to say that kind of weird. <clears throat> um, but he wasn't really a true leftist. In fact, he had received support from the CIA against Allende, who was, had ran in that election. Um, I figured I'd just mention that really quickly before we talk about Allende specifically. But by 1967, he was pretty much getting attacked from the left, who didn't think his that reforms were, were going far enough. And then he was getting attacked from the right, who thought that he was going too far. 
sounds a little bit like we talked about in Mexico. I don't know if you remember that conversation a while back. So a lot of the stuff that we, that we talked about that's leading to this moment, if you listen back to past episodes, even though we didn't talk about Chile specifically, it's again, repeating a lot of that same stuff over and over again, which is uh, I think a great way to show why, you know, again, Hirsch, we did the, this series the way we did it is because a lot of this stuff ends up repeating, you know, depending on where you're talking about specifics are different, but a lot of the same feeling is the same. Indeed. And I don't know if you wanted to talk about Allende first, or if you wanted to talk about Pinochet first, you you had some interesting information. It sounded like on, on their youth. Um, well, I mean, really, I, I'll just quickly add, um, a little bit of background information about like Chile leading up to this, uh, the the key important thing to keep in mind is that even though you had uh, Frey who was getting uh, support from the United States, um, it was still a very much more democratic process than you were seeing anywhere else that was going on in that region at the time, right? So, like, Chile during the 60s was kind of like, I don't know, a beacon of hope for both leftists and right. So they, they saw an opportunity to gain control because that was one of the few uh, places in the region that was kind of untouched at that time, um, unbeknownst to the public uh, from Western imperialism and as well as the expansion of uh, communism after uh, Stalin was able to uh, take on the burden of defeating the, the Nazi party. Um, and because of that, the Chilean economy was uh, growing, as my brother had mentioned, through urbanization, and a lot of their uh, a lot of their money was coming uh, through the reliance of exports, specifically like mineral mining, uh, copper being one of the most important ones. And during this uh, time in the '60s, during the Frey um, regime, as my brother had mentioned, he was getting attacked by both sides, and you saw an extreme polarization, kind of like what you're seeing today in the United States of both left and right movements, and it's just causing more turmoil. So that's just to add in a little bit more to the picture that is drawing up to this uh, eventual turn of power. Right, because like you always have this kind of thing repeating itself, right? You have these liberals and the so-called progressives who were promising a lot who are saying, yeah, we're for these reforms, we're for these different things. And once they get into power, they either think they don't have to follow through on those reforms or they feel the pressure of the United States, of conservative business interests, of whoever it might be, and they don't go through with them. And so a lot of that, that, that problem is, is self, self-inflicted, right? Um, they're always going get, to get attacked from the right for being too, too socialist, for being too far left, no matter what they do. I, I, I just never understand that if you're going to get criticized, you might as well get criticized for something you'll get credit for. Yeah. Um, it, that's one of the things that so frustrates me uh, about modern day politics is that we've somehow not learned the lessons of, of the past, which, which, which is why I've, I'm glad that you had said to me at one point through this series and you've said it to me before. Uh, the, the sake of history is not to necessarily learn from our past mistakes uh, because we don't. And when we have it very much, it's just to understand the context and try to um, ease, I guess, uh, as much of the uh, terrible transitions that might happen, I guess is the best way of putting it in in my perspective. Yeah, it's just it's to know why we're at where we're at. Like a lot of the reason like why I ended up studying history, like you said, Hirsch, it's not because, you know, oh, man, I wanted to change the world and make sure we don't repeat stuff, because obviously that that 
has nothing to do with anything. Um, it, it's to know why, why stuff happens the way it does. Like anytime you look at something, if you just look a little bit further back, you'll start to understand it better. And if you, depending on what it is, if you look back even further, you'll have a different perspective and you'll keep on getting these different perspectives depending on what you're looking at and what time period you're looking at. And it just helps you understand from different ways and with different systems that may have an effect over longer periods of time or not that, you know, stuff is, is the way it is for a certain reason. If, if you want to talk about cause and effect understanding, like everything's an argument, obviously you can't know for sure that cause and effect is true, but it's at least a way to start making questions arise in your own head of trying to understand why the world is the way it is and what, why things in the world are the way they are. Yeah. Um, so now, as we had mentioned, we're at, we're at 1970 and you have the introduction of, uh, a key player in the, in the telling of the, of the future of this country and Senator Salvador Allende, who is part of the socialist party. Now there was a, uh, it was known as the popular unity coalition, right? And it was, um, basically the, uh, clumping of communists and then people from the uh, radical party that we had mentioned before that was kind of like the middle class um, socialists, uh, social democrats, and then some of the people who had kind of turned their back on the Christian Democrat Party. Um, yeah, and it, it, it kind of has its background because like if you just rewind the slightly in Allende's life like he, he had founded part of the socialist party in Chile um, he had other connections with what was called the popular front at that time where other popular front groups around the world were basically anti-fascist. And so it was a broad coalition of, you know, the center to the left. And so he wasn't a, a radical Marxist. He was a socialist. He was a Marxist. He's the, actually the first Marxist who ever was elected to a democracy in the, in the Western world um, as president. You know, he, he has these ideas. He's actually one of the few people in the world, you know, that, that actually tried to, to stand up to Hitler about his persecution of the Jews, where he writes to him along with other members of Congress. You don't really see that kind of action, you know, from people who, who don't really have ideals, who don't really believe in that kind of thing. Um, he eventually goes into another group that was called the Democratic Alliance. That was kind of like a, a, a group after the Popular Front, where he not only has these, these leftist uh, connections, but center left and sometimes center connections, too. So like you said, Hirsch, he's, he's representing eventually later on that, that popular, popular unity coalition that is made up of not really the radical socialists or the radical Marxists, but more the, the, the people who believed in a democratic version, what we call democratic socialism, thinking that these things can be achieved through um, nonviolent means. Correct. Um, and I want to bring up the fact, as you had mentioned, that Allende was one of the few people... Um, at this time who kind of like understood a lot of these principles and he and again Allende had came from the same background that uh, Augusto Pinochet came from and from the records they most likely lived in the same fucking town there's a lot of speculation on where Allende was born um, but a lot of people are pointing to the fact that Allende and Pinochet definitely were born um, in, in in the capital uh, yeah so terrible but but the reason I bring that up though is while Salvador Allende was growing up, he had a neighbor um, who was uh, 
who was an Italian anarchist. Um, his name was Demarc. I forget his first name. Demarchi. It's uh, Demarchi. Juan Demarchi. Yeah. Juan Demarchi. Thank you. Yes. And he was the person who basically started instilling um, these uh, these anarchists and uh, communist theory and anti-capitalism to Allende and starts getting it to him at a very uh, young age. And so at this point, somebody yeah, he was like a, from he was like a shoemaker who lived in his neighborhood. Yeah, he was just a cobbler. Right. So like he was somebody who was definitely part of the. Uh, well, what's the best way to put it? He's definitely part of the uh, the Marxist uh, of mining, right? That would be a fair assumption. When yeah, it comes he, to he, he was an anarchist who was passing on these leftist ideals. It's a lot of what we talked about in just the history of Latin America in general, right? Like before you have Marxism and communism spreading, you have a lot of anarchist thought bringing in these leftist ideas and forming the, the basis for them. Well, and, and not to, to overstate it or try to oversimplify it, but I, the best way of trying to explain Marxism to people, like I guess Marxism for dummies, the way that I was best explained to it, and maybe this is a wrong interpretation, but the whole idea of Marxism is a part of communism that isn't necessarily about the whole seizing of means of production. It's a focusing on uh, labor and the means that labor brings and the seizing of of the means because you're the labor, right? Well, and doing well, it through whatever means. It's the idea that um, it's a critique of capitalism and, and the best way to affect capitalism is, is through the workers in capitalism. Because while they may not have anything inherently great about them, the working class is the pressure point that you can put on the capitalist class and try to get some uh, change whether you're not, you're trying to overthrow the entire government or at least just making sure that conditions get better for workers in the meantime. Correct. And, and I think um, a great analogy to quickly, to, to quickly sum it up, right, is uh, a way to, to bring uh, Marxist thought into uh, the idea of labor and uh, the money that's generated from it, right, is like LeBron James. There was news recently about how he had become the first um, athlete to access a billion dollars right the first nba player I, I believe it was uh to earn that and that was you know that that's a great example of a billionaire who was actually able to achieve that means through labor it wasn't through the uh typical capitalist way of exploitation because if anything it's very fair to say that if anybody was exploited in any situation involving lebron james it would be him right mm. uh he is somebody that literally would be the the face of an entire franchise, and he kind of dictates uh, where the heat goes, uh, for for lack of better terms. But I just well, wanted to kind of bring and, up that. And his labor success was built on the backs of, of people who made sure that he could have that labor success. Where they're talking about more recent stuff like Jordan, with expanding the idea of what a what an athlete could be uh, able to do, or even mm -hmm. just going back further with guys like uh, Oscar Robinson and others who fought for like free agency. Um, going further back for guys who fought for like players unions and that kind of stuff too, you know, like even guys like Craig Hodges who used to play for the bulls, you know, who, who tried to stand up for players rights and that kind of stuff too. I think uh, it's definitely an idea. And I think uh, another simplification, I think you had a good analogy, but another simplification is the, the old folks saying the boss makes a dollar. I make a dime. That's why I always shit on company time. Yes. That's a good way to think about it too. <laughs> I, I I love that saying for many reasons. Yeah, sorry to be crude, but yeah, when you're talking about just you know basic Marxist Marxist thought, 
it's really, you know, this critique of capitalism and seeing capitalism for what it is, which is the, the bourgeois, the, the capitalist class taking control of both politics, so society and the political system and making sure that the way to affect that is through the working class and to yeah. put pressure on them throughout it. And the CIA, the United States, they see this idea as dangerous to the way they operate throughout the world, the way they operate in the United States. And so in addition to stuff like in the United States, like the Red Scare, the McCarthy hearings, all the anti-communist stuff going on, you have that spreading around the world. Um, for example, Allende, after serving in the Senate, in the House, and that kind of thing, he does try to run for president a couple of times before 1970, um, 1952, 1958, and 1964. He was kind of seen as a loser for the first uh, election. He didn't really get very many votes because there was a split between the socialists. He ran again in 58, where he got a little bit better of a, of a showing with nearly 20, 28.5% of the vote. But he lost votes to another populist who was running this guy Zamorano at the time. Um, eventually, when he runs in 64, because of his you know, worried popularity, the CIA takes notice of both him and his uh, coalition, the FRAP coalition. Huh. Um, hmm. But the CIA put at least two and a half million dollars to finance a phrase campaign and spent at least $3 million in anti-Allende propaganda in order to scare, quote-unquote, scare voters away. Um, the way they, they were able to keep a third person in the race, give support to Frey, uh, use all that propaganda, they thought you know their support was basically indispensable, quote-unquote, to Frey's success. And you know they thought between him winning and... You know, having supported the United States, everything would be okay. So 64, Allende loses again, where he got 38 some percent of the vote against 55 percent for the Christian Democrat Frey. And the political right had come to the assistance of Frey when they realized it was going to be a two-man race where they settled for the lesser evil. And that's where I think Frey felt that pressure from the right because they, I don't know, it's kind of a weird thing, but we had a mayoral race when I was growing up where an independent was running against an incumbent Democrat. He was seen as the young, young and upcoming guy and the Republican in that race. And, and we live in a pretty 50, 50 town. The Republican in that race, I think got like 2% of the vote. Like they went wholeheartedly for the independent because they saw him as the lesser evil. And that was really the only way for that guy to win. And so this guy who talked a great reform game ended up getting pressure from the right and from conservatives in the community because he basically needed them to stay getting elected. And I think that's what happens to Frey before we had talked about, you know, he's feeling that pressure from left and right. So Andy decides to run again in 1970. Um, you know, he had a, a good relationship with the communist party, even though that didn't always include like, you know, like far left, like socialists or even far left parties who wanted violent insurrection. But he's able to win in 1970 as part of that popular unity coalition. He gains, you know, what's called a plurality of the vote where he wins, you know, he wins more than anybody else. <clears throat> yeah, he ended up with 36.6% of the vote. Mm -hmm. And the reason that he was able to win with that percentage, as you had mentioned, Frey was feeling the heat from the right. And there was a big right wing split that happened that allowed him to win. Gee, it kind of seems fucking familiar. Dude. Hmm. Yeah, right and they what? And they hmm. they typically have like a 
at this time, they had a lot of elections that came down to three candidates. And so if you didn't get a majority of the vote at this time, the Constitution said that it went to the to the House if nobody got the popular vote. But usually Congress at that time in Chile would would just go for, you know, between the two guys who got the most, they would typically vote for the guy who got the most votes. They kind of saw it as more of a formality. You know, this is the, the tradition that they that they had. You know, it didn't really matter what the margin was. They would vote for the guy who won president. That's what happened in 58, where this guy, um, Alessandri, had only won 31% of the popular vote. But because he won the, the plurality, he had defeated, you know, people including Allende. At this time, though, there are people in the CIA, in the United States, you have Nixon and Kissinger, you know, Nixon's president at this time, keep in mind who are like, hey, can we, can, not only, you know, we, we had defeated Allende before with, you know, spending, it didn't quite work out this time. Is there another way we can keep him from coming to power? Can we put pressure on the Congress through the military, maybe, to, to vote for somebody else? And that's where you start to see this, this interference in the idea of any kind of Allende presidency and what they'll do to make sure it doesn't happen, or if it does happen, that it's not, not successful. And I'm going to jump in really quickly because that's where you have an important incident that um, not only gets the United States further annoyed and angry, but it also kind of rallies the entire country, including the military, around Allende, which is October 25th, 1970. The CIA starts an operation, and what they plan on doing is kidnapping a uh, general from Allende's uh, military, one of his loyalists, okay? Now, when they went to go do this, they ended up bungling it completely. Weren't even able to, they they weren't able to kidnap or execute him or anything. Um, And so this ends up completely rallying the the nation to his side. Um, And this pretty much stops any interference from Congress uh, from intervening um, the appointment of Allende. Yeah, pretty much what Hirsch is talking about is this guy, uh, General Rene Schneider. I had mentioned him briefly as one of the people on the you know hit list, essentially. Um, he was what you would call a constitu- constitutionalist. He saw the military's place <clears throat> as you know being being a military to defend the country from enemies. You know, he didn't think it was the military's place to help choose a president. Let that be the will of the voters. But he was seen, you know, as these people who did want to maybe support a coup. You had this guy, Roberto uh, Vio, or Vio. I don't know how to pronounce it for sure. It's like a French, French pronunciation, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. You had guys like him who were open to the idea, you know, pushed by the CIA, pushed by the United States and others, uh, other conservatives with, even within the country of Chile. Again, like we always say, you know, it's not, it's not done just because the United States wants it done. They're, they're going to find allies within these countries. Um, they decide, like you said, Hirsch, to, to kidnap Schneider. But Schneider's no joke. He pulled his fucking weapon and he resisted, so they shot him. He ended up dying a couple days later, but he wasn't kidnapped like Hirsch said. He wasn't executed in any kind of show of force. They basically pull the plug on the would-be coup because, like you said, Schneider, you know, they're pissed off that he got killed, that VO or anybody in the, in the military would have anything to do with it. And any kind of idea of not pushing through Allende is done at that point. The, the military is not going to oppose him. 
Um, they're going to get a new commander in chief of the army to replace Schneider. Uh, everything is going to go through as far as putting A and A through as president. And you actually, I don't know if you saw Hearst, but I found a Kissinger quote that supposedly he said to Nixon in context of, of this event that was going on and what they were trying to do at the time. And he said, you know, this looks hopeless. I turned it off. Nothing could be worse than an abortive coup. And mm. that, that language is interesting. One of the videos I was watching by uh, Khan Academy, which is a really great free program you can find in a lot of places, um, he brought attention to this idea. Like, I, at first I thought when, when I'd seen that quote, like, oh, maybe he was watching something, you know, like, oh, I turned it off. Like, oh, I was pissed off at what I was seeing. But no, he's talking about turning off the coup. You know, take it for what, you know, this is, you know, I don't have the context fully, but like, this is what I'm taking it as, is that he, he pulled the plug essentially on like U.S. support for a coup and that kind of made it kind of fizzle out at that point. And it's a hair pulling moment because it was something that they, that they all believed was uh, within their hands. It was within their grasp. And um, Allende's appointment is important for multiple reasons, right? He was able to bounce back from failing three times of trying to run. And uh, there was a attempted kidnapping of one of his most trusted uh, generals that was failed. I mean, he did end up dying, as, as my brother had mentioned, but he wasn't executed um, in the way that they were wanting to, to uh, show power. Um, and, and most importantly, um, Allende would uh, become the first Marxist leader that would be elected in Latin America. And that is a huge deal because communism was something that uh, was spreading but just like with, uh, quote, capitalism, there are many different variations in forms and thought and theory uh, that are revolving within it. Uh, and so it's a very significant moment uh, for Latin, Latin history and just uh, history in general. Absolutely. And then we are going to bring up somebody who is going to become uh, a major part of the story here pretty soon. But I just want to highlight a little bit about the presidency of Allende, where he does put through a lot of these reforms that he's talking about, where he's nationalizing different uh, mineral rights, where he's nationalizing different companies, kind to take private property from certain people in order to give it to people who are more who have been exploited or maybe don't have as much. Um, this is where he starts to feel the pressure from the U.S. as well, because Nixon basically declares an ec economic war on, on Chile any kind of American resource, any kind of American connection, any kind of American economic power is going to be used against Chile and any kind of success as far as the regime itself. We see that especially with Cuba, where you have, uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union, where they didn't have direct assistance, the U.S. blockade and any kind of direct uh, interference from the United States really affects the people and that country's economy negatively. Um, so during this time, you have a lot of unrest and strikes. You have pressure from the right wing. You have strikes from, from capital, essentially. But you also do have some labor strikes. Um, CIA is putting into effort a huge propaganda campaign. There's economic sanctions, like I had mentioned. Um, his coalition was starting to break down. They were becoming a minority in the Congress because of this opposition, because of a lot of that propaganda, because of those sanctions, because of that pressure from the United States and others. And... Allende himself was starting to feel that pressure, but Allende was not, Allende was a, a democratic socialist, like I mentioned. He believed in the democratic process for good or bad. He didn't want to overstep 
the military. He didn't want to overstep uh, any kind of political parties or that kind of thing. You do see censorship of um, different media organizations. He did end up taking steps when it got desperate. But an example was they turned down the idea of arming different militias in the countryside who would maybe support them against the military. Um, they actually took weapons maybe away from a couple of those different groups from what I was, was able to find out. But he was, you know, a person who had these ideals and he believed that, you know, democracy mattered and that we have these, uh, we have these norms in society that need to be upheld. And I think that's always dangerous when you're dealing with the right and what it's always going to be willing to do when it comes to power and capital. Well, and the, the excess of um, influence that the U.S. was having eventually like bubbles out during the economic depression that takes place in 72, right? You end up seeing the economy completely collapse because of uh, U.S. influence that basically uh, just distorted the, uh, the overall value of the dollar as well as uh, uh, credit for all the banks that were operating. Because one of the things that or some of the things that Allende was doing to try to um, outmaneuver some of these uh, sanctions and tariffs that were being put into place. Um, he would do things like price freezes. Um, he also did things uh, like wage increases, also started bringing in implementing uh, tax reform that would try to uh, increase consumer spending while also redistributing income uh, accordingly. And during this time, you saw him kind of dally with the, idea that my brother had mentioned with the uh, idea of democratic socialism. And he starts joining uh, a lot of the public and private sectors. And so you start seeing jobs increase with this. Um, you start seeing a lot more of the banks become nationalized to try to ease some of the uh, bad credit scores that were taking place. And you start seeing all of the uh, mineral industries get either reappropriated or they become nationalized themselves as well. No, and, and keep in mind, like, as this is taking place, the United States sees a very huge threat, right? Because he is the first democratically elected Marxist. Um, it wasn't a communist takeover. It wasn't an invasion by the Soviet Union. Or it wasn't a revolution that, that sent him to power. He was directly elected. There is no bigger a threat to American interests, to American ideals, than the idea that, that a socialist would be popularly elected and able to rule in any kind of popular way. And so, like I had said, not only was he targeted before he was elected, but there's this memo that is uh, that was declassified that the CIA base in Chile was sent where, you know, quote, it is firm and continuing policy that Allende be overthrown by a coup. It would, be, it would be much preferable to have this transpire prior to 24 October. That was that private, that period before that we had talked about Hirsch, you know, before Schneider is killed. But efforts mm -hmm. in this regard will continue vigorously beyond this date. We are to continue to generate maximum pressure towards this end, utilizing every appropriate resource. It is imperative that these actions be implemented clandestinely and securely so that the United States government, American hand, be well hidden. Well, in, in one of these clandestine groups uh, were kind of the remnants of the Frey administration that Allende ended up using himself, such as the MIR. Um, and he was using groups like the MRR, which are basically nothing more than glorified militias to enforce and, uh, uh, quote, secure the, uh, all the copper mines and mineral mines that I mentioned before. No, and it, it's not surprising that once he does make those moves that 
you know, we had seen the kidnapping of Schneider, where apparently the CIA had given weapons to a group, but it wasn't the same group who fucked up the the uh, you know kidnapping. But the group that killed Schneider essentially had been in contact with the CIA. Um, they paid some hush money to try to keep it secret to keep the group you know quiet about it. But it's pretty obvious that the CIA was involved in stuff going further back, but getting heavily involved when it came to Allende, like you said, Hirsch, because you have mineral stuff getting privatized. You have other parts of the economy. You basically have the idea of a successful socialist government in Latin America, right underneath America, essentially. That's the way they see it anyway. And with all that, I just quickly wanted to add, because we I, I feel like we might have forgotten it not intentionally. Um, Allende's first year when he took office was actually surprisingly good. Um, the world was kind of waiting, and he was able to not only increase industrial production, but he was also able to uh, to stabilize the, uh, the wealth equality that was happening in that nation. Um, but we're going to go ahead and fast forward really quickly. So with all of this stuff that's happening, um, by by 73, you start to see inflation get out of control in the country because, again, um, whether it be some of the own doings of the the Allende government itself or it be through uh, U.S.-backed interference, um, the economy is on fire. Um, you, you see more and more strikes, like my brother had mentioned, and it was from all walks of life. It wasn't just specifically um, laborers that were working, you know, like dock jobs or railways. Um, it was everything from physicians to teachers, students themselves, truck drivers, etc. Um, and yeah, because like of- the, this was like strikes from the well-off sectors a lot of the time, right? And this ended up getting support from guys like Nixon who couldn't give a shit about union rights. Exactly. Mr. Deregulation himself. Um, yeah, and part of this plan was actually supported directly by the CIA, where they gave them over like two mil in part of what was called the September plan. Go ahead, though. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. Oh, no, no, you're good. It's, it's important to add that. Um, so you then eventually get to a point of May 26th, and, and, and again, this is the year 1973. Um, the Chilean Supreme Court, they unanimously denounce the Allende regime. And when they do this, it doesn't necessarily um, remove Allende from power. However, uh, because of the, uh, the verbal and the public denouncement of the Allende regime, it allows for the person, the person rather that we had mentioned earlier, Pinochet, to uh, further bolster his eventual claim to power when that takes place. Yeah, and Pinochet is actually appointed by Allende to be the uh, chief of the army. And this is this is the thing I want to add to that, right? Because as my brother had mentioned, Allende had appointed Pinochet. He had Pinochet had basically taken the place of uh, the person who had been kidnapped. Um, what was his name again? I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the name. I shouldn't. No, Schneider. He he takes place like an like a, a appointment or two after, but essentially for all sense and purposes, he takes over Schneider. Yes, eventually he he rises up the ranks. Um, even even at the head scratch of some, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I was trying to remember where I was going to be going with that. So with with yeah, all the coalition, this, the coalition's breaking down. Like the the moderates are joining up with the right. 
the the left is having to fight the right and the center at the same time, like always, a lot of the liberals are forming up with the right, you have a really big breakdown. Correct. And at this point in time, because things are starting to slip, uh, the the military juntas, as they're referred to, or just the military governments is a better way or easier way of thinking of them. Um, they start talking amongst themselves and they start uh, trying to figure out uh, what way are they going to get rid of Allende. Now, obviously, I say talk amongst themselves and the idea to remove Allende had been there amongst some of his military throughout the whole time. The only difference is, is that there also was a lot of CIA operations that were happening to influence a lot of these uh uh, military operatives and, and say, hey, you know what, if, you, if you're able to throw this coup, we'll float you some money and we'll make sure that you have the backing of the United States. Um, well, and there's even like, you know, um, congressional resolutions as the coalition's breaking down, as the right wing is taking power, as pressure is coming in, where they're basically saying that, you know, it's a totalitarian system that we need to have something come in to stop the socialist government from interfering in our lives to the point where we can't be free. It's a lot of the same bullshit that you see the right wing talk a lot of the time. But Ande, you know, was open to, to criticism. He was, you know, he did censor the media. He did, you know, try to do certain things. But he was willing to, he floated the idea of, you know, solving things with a referendum about his pre presidency. He was a believer in democracy. But like her said, you have these plans going on about uh, a military coup d'etat. You have direct support from the United States government, from the CIA, from American business interest, from the conservative business interest directly in Chile itself. And so to talk a little bit about what is known as, uh, I saw Hearst, the, the video I looked up that was from the majority report a couple of years ago where Michael Brooks was talking about this is called the other September 11th. And it's um, September 11th, 1973, where eventually the people like Pinochet other people in that military junta. Uh, we had talked about juntas a little bit before where it basically come, came from that idea when Napoleon taken over, hey, we'll take over in place of this government, but we'll hold on to it for the king to come back. Where, where juntas are basically the idea, oh, we'll hold on to power with the idea that we'll eventually give it up, but that, that rarely ever happens without you know, any kind of force of power. Um, they are able basically to surround the capital, um, in the capital, the, the military, excuse me, the presidential palace where Ande is holed up. And it, there's a lot of debate whether Allende killed himself or whether he was killed. The official reports have always said suicide, including like official reports, like later on in response to that kind of thing. But I, I think based on everything that we've seen, everything that we know, including the idea that maybe Allende killed himself with an automatic weapon. That kind of stuff just always sounds fishy to me to begin with. Yeah, because it's, it is noted. There were, there are multiple reports confirming that um, while the, while the, they were basically bombing the, the presidential palace in the Capitol. And it's actually kind of fucked up because there's a quote um, where this is happening. And then Allende goes, I wonder what they've done with Pinochet. Like that was his, like that was one of his first thoughts that like, he had because he's seen that his military was taken over. And he had thought that Pinochet was somebody who um, had aligned with them and kind of taken the loyalty spot of uh, his former general, but he was obviously very wrong. Um, 
But more importantly, you would mention the automatic weapon part. Now, there are reports saying that the automatic weapon that Allende was using while he was trying to fight off the forces, which he did fight them off for about an hour or two uh, from a lot of reports I was seeing. He was armed with a Kalashnikov AK that was given to him by none other than Fidel Castro himself. Oh, really? Yes. I did not know that. That's a that's an interesting fact. Yep. Something and, something interesting to think of. And one thing I did want to bring up in context to all this is that part of what the Covert Action Program was actually called at the time is Project uh, Fubelt, F-U-B-E-L-T. It's basically the, the plan that was to stop Allende's rise or to, to stop anything from happening with his direct uh, election or from him continuing power. There was two main tracks to it that both eventually led up to the, to the 73 coup. We talked a lot about what was going on there, but I wanted to give like the official name there. Um, one of the things that you see, though, is that there's a group that was called the ITT Corporation. They're called ITT Inc. right now but they owned a big percentage of a Chilean telephone company and also helped found like a Chilean right-wing newspaper. It was a basically a CIA um, partnership where they would financially aid opponents of Allende's government. Uh, in response to that, in September of 73, ITT's headquarters in New York City was bombed by the Weather Underground because they believed that they helped partner in the overthrow of Allende. And so at least a little bit of that shit came home for them. Well, there's multiple times where you see uh, bits of the coup in Chile take place in the United States. And we're going to get to that uh, now that we're gearing towards the Pinochet era. And that that was one of those times. There's another time, too, that is the doing of the Pinochet regime. And it actually takes place in the capital. Yeah, and uh, after that that coup, you have Pinochet basically taking power, right? Where there's supposed to be uh, a bunch of military people in power together, but he's basically like, nah, I'm going to be cool. I'm going to be in charge. I don't know if I'm simplifying that too much, Hirsch. No, I mean, that's, that's the perfect way because the thing is, it's important to note that um, Pinochet wasn't really somebody who was necessarily uh, earing for the coup. He eventually was approached by the military and was given the thought, and he just kind of fell in. Um, that's, the, that's the weird thing about Pinochet. If you, if you go throughout his life, he's kind of somebody, like he had the nickname Donkey that was given to him when he was a teenager, all right, because he was kind of, well, you can figure that out. And then on top <laughs> of that, they, they, they said it was because of his laugh, but you know, I'll, I'll leave imagination for what it is. But that honestly, that's a perfect way of putting it. He just kind of uh, said, you know what? We we took over Allende. I'm I'm the one who's in charge. Um, and he was uh, cited by it was three other uh, groups from the military. It was like a four four headed uh, military government that was implemented mm -hmm. at that time with him being the head of it. Yeah, they were. It was the army, the navy, the air force, and then another general who represented like the national police. They suspended the constitution and Congress. You know, they they put into uh, effect like really strict censorship and a curfew. They banned all political parties and said that any kind of political activity 
was banned. They especially targeted anybody who was of supportive of the left or anybody who was even close to the left. Um, they held this power until uh, late 1974, where they were basically seen as like a legislate, legislative body, but the executive powers were directly transferred to Pinochet. And I just wanted to bring up um, that, you know, there's not direct evidence that the United States was involved in the coup itself, where Pinochet was able to take power. But there's no doubt in my mind that they at least laid the groundwork, if not directly were involved in what was going on. Because similarly well, to like I had said with Snyder, right? They said that Kissinger even said he didn't, he, he pulled the plug. But the CIA said, hey, we never got a stop order. So like that makes you wonder whether they even knew what the CIA was doing. Yeah, or if it was just a bunch of cowboys or something, you know? Well, and people um, can go off record, right? But that doesn't mean like they can go off reservation, you know, quote unquote, for a horrible fucking term. But that doesn't mean that it's not the CIA. Yeah, and, and, and the thing is, I want to add into that too, because you had mentioned, now, I there was a, um, a video that I had seen, uh, I believe it's called Biographics, and they had mentioned something um, that Kissinger had, had said, and this is a rumor, right? I'm not saying that this is confirmed, but there was a rumor that after this coup, Kissinger had told Nixon that they, they successfully finally were able to, to do the project that they had failed before numerous mm-hmm. times. No, and they, they were definitely happy with the outcome. Uh, regardless of whether they supported it completely, where you have direct CIA and United States support for the Pinochet dictatorship, even if they criticize him in public, they're still supporting him behind the scenes because they realize that, you know, these, these right-wing dictatorships are a great way to not only keep the left in check, but to kind of serve as a, an example of what happens in other countries when you do elect a leftist or when the leftist does take power. Yeah. And, and quickly to add too, we had mentioned, um, the Air Force and the Navy generals. Now, the Air Force General Gustavo Lay, um, he was somebody that we're going to be talking about in a little bit as well. But just to keep in mind, <clears throat> he was somebody that uh, didn't really necessarily fully support the claim to power for the military. Um, he was somebody who was part of the military, but he kind of fell under the uh, same idea um, that Allende and his regime had when it came to, you know, let the military be the military let the government be the government. They don't need to necessarily be the same entity. Yeah, and he eventually gets replaced in uh, 78 because he's causing too much uh, of an issue. And what you have going on, not only Pinochet is taking more power, you have eventually a constitution in 1980 that gives him even more power once he does take over what he eventually calls the presidency, where he's getting more and more power put into that office, taking more advantage. And I want to bring up at this time, Hirsch, something that we'll be talking about a lot in the future, which is something called Operation Condor. And again, this is information that, you know, you can find readily out there. I encourage you to look it up more specifically. But it's basically is CIA-run operation, a cooperative effort, not only by intelligence and security agencies, with different uh, Latin American regimes that were dictatorships or right-wing governments, that targeted the left especially, but they were involved in not only torture, kidnapping, murder, but what you would issue, what you would basically call state terrorism. Um, they would spy on their secret police, you know, would spy on their populations. They would kill and torture people as young. I saw like as 12 were some of the, were some of the victims and that kind of thing. 
like in Chile specifically. Even younger in some cases. Yeah, and that that's like what they know for sure, like got tortured. They're probably killing anybody who was whatever, but they probably thought this kid knew something, you know. Um, yeah. Anybody who was close to the left or suspect, suspected of being like a even a liberal or a leftist sympathizer what was targeted as well. Um, Condor's key members at that time were Argentina, Chile, Uruguay, Paraguay, Bolivia, and Brazil. Eventually, Ecuador and Peru have other roles as well. But the United States government directly provided planning, coordination, and training on torture, um, support, and military aid during the Johnson, Nixon, Ford, Carter, and Reagan administrations, which was given through the CIA. And this is, again, information that we know publicly, yet alone the stuff that we don't know is really terrifying to think about. But this is put into effect formally in November of 1975. Um, his 60th birthday. So happy birthday to him. Yeah. Yeah. Happy birthday operation. Uh, (laughs) but yeah, so like we'll be going a lot more into the specific history, but you have, uh, especially under Pinochet, you have death squads, you have people who are disappearing. Um, you have thousands and thousands of people who are either murdered, tortured, or just taken one day and they're never seen by their loved ones again. Um, if you've ever seen the horrible fucking meme about, you know, people putting photos of helicopters when they want to target anybody on the left, this is kind of brought about by Pinochet's regime because he kind of brought into effect where he would take people in a helicopter, slit their, their, their belly or intestines open, um, throw them in the ocean where they would basically, you know, be pulled out by their intestines as they're falling, like, you know, from the helicopter and shit like that. Like there was some really nasty, nasty stuff going on where you have at least 30,000 victims, if not more, that were either killed or, or at least tortured by the regime or its supporters. And if you, if you didn't think people like Kissinger, if you didn't think people like Nixon and, and other presidents were evil before, the more that you read into the death squads and the other stuff that's going on with direct support of the United States government, with support of these different intelligence communities, it makes you sick to your stomach. Well, and, and in particular, what, what my brother's referencing with the with the helicopters, this was known as the caravan of death, right? And it was mm-hmm. basically a military unit that would uh, fly in helicopters. They used military vehicles. They would uh, fly up and down the coast as well as going to rural and desert areas. Um, and they would specifically target people that were leftists. They would do things everywhere from, like my brother had mentioned, throw them from helicopters into, right, in, into lakes, rivers, and the ocean, um, as well into the mountain, uh, mass, exe- mass executions into, into mass graves that were often unmarked and uh, just kind of poured over with dirt. Um, by the end of the caravan of death, uh, the official number, and again, I say official because it's all speculative, uh, but the official number that they were able to give was 72 people by the end of this caravan of death were uh, killed specifically during this uh, short time period. Um, and I want to quickly go back, as you had mentioned, the 30,000 number. Now, from what I had looked into uh, when it came to Operation Condor, and this is something we're going to get into, obviously, but just a quick oversight. Uh, Operation Condor overall was responsible for up to 80,000 people that were killed, 400 to 500 uh, that were killed in cross-border operations and over 400,000 that were uh, jailed and tortured, 30,000 of which disappeared. So, um, like my brother had mentioned, 
this idea that, you know, oh, you know, Nixon wasn't purely bad. He was just, you know, maybe slightly racist or, you know, didn't care about the environment. No, these people were, uh, not to sound like one of these evangelicals, but these people were pure evil. The closest to uh, the idea of the devil um, incarnate that we could ever think of. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it, we had mentioned before, it wasn't just adults that were being killed and tortured. It was children that were 12 and 12 and younger that were being tortured and uh, executed. And another thing that uh, Pinochet loved doing, and it was one of his favorite things to do, is to get the uh, daughters of suspected leftists and let his soldiers uh, test out electroshock therapy and electrocution methods on them. And with the other women, they would have animals have sex with them while the soldiers watched. Yeah, they, so, they were known to like slowly torture and kill people by gouging their eyes out, breaking bone by bone, shooting them in different body parts, and then finishing them off after basically making their death as long and painful as possible. All in the name of making sure that people were scared politically, were scared socially to speak out either against the regime or in support of any kind of uh, leftist ideals. And, you know, if, if you're listening and you're thinking like, OK, that's a lot. Th- those numbers are insane. Uh, maybe you're perhaps wrong. If you don't if you don't necessarily believe it, if you want to double check it, uh, the reports that are responsible for the numbers that we're using are known as the Reddit report and the Valage Commission, um, where they go over specifically uh, uh, some of the numbers. One of the numbers I have right here is that um, up to they have the official number of up to 88 children that were the ones that were tortured. And those are children that are 12 and younger. So there was much more that were only 13, 14 that were considered quote adult. Yeah. And there's, and there's always going to even be numbers that we're not going to know about, you know, yeah. as much and as I, they research, as much as they look into it, like there's going to be people that we'll never know about. No. And for sure. And I, and the reason I had brought up earlier, eventually there was a 2011 report that would bring in an additional nine, 9,800 victims to the total um, uh, for the Pinochet regime being responsible for 40,018 deaths, uh, tortures, or jails for political reason. Yeah. And like I'd mentioned before, a lot of the stuff just that you end up reading about, if it doesn't make you angry, it makes you very, very depressed about the state of humanity and what people are able to do to each other. And in addition to the horrible stuff that he is willing to inflict on his own people and that we see with Operation Condor around the continent, around the, around the area of Latin America. You also at the same time have these right-wing economic moves where you have a lot of privatization, basically overturning any progress that A&A had made to try to make it a more equalized um, economic society. Where you have these huge economic reforms, you have privatization of healthcare, you have privatization of the pension plans of the, basically the social safety net, but the United States pulls out all the stops, right? Like this is our, this is our baby. Uh, if you're looking at it from the United States point of view, not only were we able to topple over a directly elected socialist, we made his government look bad. We made socialism look bad in the process. And then we made it look like this guy killed himself by hiding in his, pa- uh, in his palace, you know? And so they pull out all the stops. They're going to support this government, this regime in any way possible. And that includes economic support. That includes making sure that things will work out for them. So Chile basically becomes, and to this current day, it's kind of seen as a Latin American success story because of its economy. 
has a really high state of living, um, has a lot of industry that's there, has a lot of uh, different startups, has a lot of stuff going on there where, you know, people are pretty well off financially if you're in that middle and upper class. Of course, the indigenous people, of course, the poor laborers, of course, the people who are farmers, they're the ones who are always going to get fucked. Whether it's a neoliberal regime or if it's a military dictatorship, that's kind of how things are always going to break down. We just, we hide it in a better way with our, with our current methods of government than people did in the past. Well, and on top of that, I was just going to add, right? Like the, the thing is, if people in America want to try to think that like, you know, there's no middle class, there's no middle class, go to fucking Chile and see what no middle class truly looks like. Because I'd like to make the argument that there is no middle class. The wealth and equality gap that is of Chile is very monumental. And I myself feel like it is a prime example of the idea of what free uh, free market capitalism can do because um, it does work out if you are somebody who is lucky enough to be born into wealth and was able to keep it. Otherwise, it's it's no different than playing the lottery. And, and just for being, you know, completely brutally honest. And part of the reason that um, these free market ideas were able to be implemented in Chile is because you had um, what was the uh, there was a economist uh, Milton Friedman. Um, that was uh, yeah the Chicago of, school. Yeah, so he, he had the Chicago school, and then you had Pinochet, who eventually had a group known as the Chicago Boys, which were a group of uh, Chileans who had went to study over here in the United States at that school that we had just mentioned. And that's where you start to see this uh, very large push towards extreme um, free market privatizations. It was basically to the point to where anything that wasn't bolted down, they were grabbing and turning into privatized companies. And now the thing is, is yes, um, there were a lot of cases where it was successful, but one of the key things to talk about, and this is something that both the left and the right can somewhat agree on here, is uh, a lot of times you wouldn't see people get access to these industries, um, privatizations, based off of their skill. It was a lot of nepotism that was going in. Uh, one of the biggest examples, I think it was Pinochet's nephew, was given complete control over one of the mining companies that were down there, and it was just because he was Pinochet's nephew. So it's um, it, it was definitely just a passing of the the coffers, if you will, in the area. Yeah, and because of this stuff going on, you know, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, the Inter-American Developmental Bank, they start loaning Chile vast sums of money, much more than they would ever provide other um, even leftist-leaning countries. You have ITT, that company I mentioned, uh, Dow Chemical, Firestone, when they had their uh, properties and their holdings expropriated by Ande, they're able to return to Chile. So basically you have this huge economic um, boom that Pinochet and the upper class are able to take advantage of where poverty becomes uh, a huge problem again, where you have the, the richest members of Chile um, holding much more of the property and holding much more of the economy than they had even before Ande had come into power. And this last, really through the 1980s, like her said, you had guys like Friedman, you had a new constitution in 1980 that gave him even more power. Um, you also see these huge neoliberal economic reforms because really the, the three lessons that Friedman and others had in mind was um, economic liberalization, privatizing state-owned companies, and to stabilize inflation. Those were their goals pretty much at, at any cost. And, and 
the market reforms were done to make sure that those went through. And that meant fucking over the, the poor and working class in the process. But that didn't last forever. In the late 1980s, there becomes an effort to replace Pinochet, even within the military junta itself. He eventually is, is forced to step down as president, I believe, in 1990, Hirsch, if I'm not wrong. Correct. But he stays in power really until 1998 as the, uh, what is he, the commander-in-chief i think until 1998 so like he was out of power essentially but he still was able to hold on to some things until march of 98 and the reason yeah go ahead i'm I'm sorry i'm sorry i was gonna say the reason that after he was taken away from power is because a lot of the people that wanted to replace him um they couldn't give him up for expedition uh extradition right they couldn't give him up to another country they couldn't take him for war crimes Mm -hmm. any of that and so it was their way of trying to ensure his protection um, and also allow him to continue to generate his own wealth. Yeah. And part of that protection is he gets made like a senator for life, which I think was like a weird part of their constitution where he was basically protected from any kind of uh, prosecution for that. Um, he eventually, though, loses that, I think, when he goes to Great Britain at some point. And so he does end up getting... Uh, arrested while he's in Great Britain. But he dies yeah. before he's really held account for anything. I think he dies in 2003. It was... Um, I have... I believe it was 2003. Now, you 2006, mentioned that, excuse me. Oh, okay. It was 2006. My bad. Um, now, you had mentioned his trip to, uh, to Great Britain. Now, he was there, from my understanding, he was for like a surgery, correct? Um... Yeah, from what I could tell, like, he had had, like, a weird kind of relationship with Thatcher and Tony Blair. And so he was able to make it into um, into the United Kingdom, basically, for that reason. Well, he, Tony, that was the thing, right? Because, like, what, what really scratched my head is that... Uh, at that time, there was a lot of uproar when Pinochet had, had visited there. And there's a lot of people who were upset because not just the Tories uh, were saying, hey, you know, I know he did a lot of bad stuff, but look at the economy, right? Like, he did that. And he, you know, he stepped down from power. He's not a dictator. And right along with the Tories, the Labor Party at that time was also like, yeah, I don't think we should try to, like, persecute him let's just let him you know go back home and live out his life in lesser words yeah and you've got to wonder what kind of of deals are made between leaders like thatcher and a lot of these leaders because she was right there with reagan was supporting a lot of this stuff you know well yeah she was one of the biggest uh reasons that the uh the general uh, public view on Pinochet wasn't as bad as it was because she stepped in and she was like, I I got to see firsthand just how great he made that country. Like, oh yeah, you forgot to mention, you know, the, the mass executions and the torturing of children and shit like that. But yeah, good job. High five. Well, and supposedly he had given them support when they were fighting Argentina over the uh, Falklands. Mm-hmm. And so that was where part of that support came from in addition to their ideological, you know, concerns they had in common. Yeah, he he eventually is arrested while he was in uh, the United Kingdom. 
where he is extradited back to, to Chile, but he passes away, like I mentioned in 2006, before he's able to be held completely responsible. But there are members of his regime that are still on trial. Um, but we'll see how, how that comes along. Um, I, I think looking over his regime, you can't really describe it as anything but fascist and right wing. Uh, I know there's a there's a discussion, you know, whether whether it's true fascism or, or, or what the kind of response is. But I think anytime you have a, a military dictatorship that comes to power that holds over control over people by targeting the left, especially the communists, that it's, it's kind of defining itself. But I, I think that's besides the point, whether you want to describe him as fascist or not, it was a, it was a horrible dictatorship. And a lot of those repercussions are still felt to this day, Hirsch, like we had mentioned, where you have these neoliberal reforms that were put in place in the 80s that have made it so that the wealthy elite have even more control, have even more power and money than they did before. But that isn't going unnoticed. Starting in 2019, you had massive Chilean protests known as the uh, the Estalio, Estalit, Estalidio Social, the social outburst, excuse me for stuttering like that, where you had in the, in the huge cities, these, these massive civil protests that took place. And if you want to think about like the George Floyd protest, but like on steroids, that's basically what was going on here, where you had people taking to the streets, using violence when necessary, whether it was against property, whether it was against um, um, police. It was probably the biggest march seen in Chile. There was a huge amount of people who were injured, unfortunately, where a lot of people died. Um, there was nearly 2,500 people who had been injured, 2,800 somebody that had been arrested. There was uh, you know, stuff that was going on, whether it was eye mutilation, torture, sexual abuse, and sexual assault against the protesters. Um, but one of the things that became famous with different protests in, in Chile, and this is dating back to 2011 when Chile had another protest, is I don't know if you've heard of this, Hirsch. It's uh. There's this dog called the, the Negro Marapacos. Mm. He, uh, he is known in mural, murals and stuff around the world as like a, a symbol of protest. And there was tw in 2011, there were these student protests in Chile that were going on. And he was a street dog that would go around and protect people who were getting attacked by the police. And that name translates as black cop killer. Oh, gosh. Yeah, like he wasn't like he wouldn't like a, like kill them, but he would like he would get aggressive to cops. He especially when they had water hoses and stuff like that. Like he hated the fucking water hoses. But he had people on the street who would take care of him. They would put him in a red bandana, and so some of the stuff that you see is the direwolf from Game of Thrones, but it's got a red bandana um, as a response to like you know keeping him in membership and like remembering him and that kind of thing. Uh, mm. The dog himself, unfortunately, he passed away, I believe, in like 20, 2013, 2014 or something like that. Oh, no, 2017. So he wasn't part of the most recent protest, but people have signs of him. They have murals of him. He's become like a big symbol for, for different stuff around the world. He's kind of thought of the same way as the what was called. Uh, uh, there's a Greek dog that became very famous in the protest in Greece that was a street dog that did the same kind of thing where he would join up with protesters against the police and against the military and that kind of stuff. And I always thought that in all this sea of bullshit that we see, it, it, it's just a fun, it's a cool thing to see this fucking dog take on injustice, you know, just well, out of instinct. It makes you, it, it's, uh, it's one of those feel good things. It's, it's like, um, it, it kind of gives you the installation of uh, spirituality, 
right? Like even even an idea or a concept like revolution and uh, you know right or wrong is something that can be understood even on an animalistic level and. Uh, whether it be the spirit of past revolutionaries or not, um, just the fact that it was, I don't know, like, I, I didn't know about that, and hearing about that is actually really cool. That's a nice. Yeah, story. like I said, look up some of the images, like the uh, Negro Marapacos, like, uh, it's a really fun image. Uh, there's a lot of art around the world in, in memory of him, who sounds like he was a pretty fucking cool dog. But yeah, you had um, those, those protests that are still continuing throughout 2021 into the into the pandemic. I know there was a lot of inspiration for the protests that were going on here from there and vice versa. And so again, th this kind of stuff goes beyond borders. You know, the the, the struggles for, for people for better wages, for minimum wage increases, for getting reforms in education, healthcare. Um, that sounds like stuff that we would fight for too. And that's exactly what they were going for as well. Exactly. And, and that's, you know, I think it's important to um, take these principles that we that we like to espouse for on the left and not look at it from just a uh, American point of view. We definitely have to stop seeing in borders and stop seeing in flags and um, not only worry about the rights of workers and um, marginalized people here within our own country, but we have to think about and try to protect uh, those of the same uh, ilk across the world. Absolutely. And we might've hit fast forward towards the end there, getting past Pinochet's terrible regime. And then you do have him losing power to democratic politics again, but you pretty much have the center forming a coalition that's gonna keep in place a lot of these neoliberal reforms and continue playing the game the quote unquote right way, where they're getting American support. They're seen as the Latin American success story that wealth inequality continues to grow. You see those protests, like we mentioned in response to it, they're, they're similar political structure right now is, is a lot like ours, where you have a huge inequality between the wealthy and those that have almost nothing. And that's always going to be a recipe for a disaster, whether neoliberal reforms can keep a lid on that or whether you have, you know, the right wing take power again, is something that's going to be seen in the future. But I think this was a great episode to not only connect what we had done in the past, but kind of show where we're going to go with a lot of this dirty war kind of stuff, where we have the CIA, the United States government, be involved in a lot of this kind of stuff going on in Latin America that we're going to try to focus on. And I don't know no, if you had anything that you wanted to add at the end, Hirsch. I know we, uh, we covered one country in, in an hour and 40 minutes, so we, we did leave a lot of stuff out. <laughs> Feel free to check out Operation Condor, check out more on the church committee. We'll be talking about them more. But also just check out stuff about Allende, about Pinochet, about his terrible regime if you want to find out more. And if you want to just call us on anything that we said, feel free to, to check in. We always love feedback. Yeah, but you better check yourself before you wreck yourself. Um, yeah, the one thing I Don't will, bring no bullshit. Yeah, don't bring no weak shit in our house. Um, I, I will just say that I think – um, besides the the points that that I think we've harped on, and I think we've uh, done a good job of of creating the the template. Um, but beyond that, um, I think the the story of Chile, as well as um, Allende and Pinochet themselves, I think it's an important story um, to just understand and to digest itself. Um, it's a story of again two two men who had come from a middle class background. Um, and didn't ever really show any signs of 
pure greatness or pure evil, right? Because that's a lot of times um, the human fascination whenever it comes to atrocities that are committed or greatness that's achieved. It's always, oh, let's look back into their past, you know. Oh, when, you know, when little Timmy was a kid, he, you know, he always shown signs of being a leader. Um, these these were associations that were never made with these guys at all. Um, in, in particular, Pinochet himself. And I think it's an important thing to uh, take a lesson from, from understanding that uh, even people that we may necessarily see as very boring or mundane or even as a joke, right? Because Pinochet had the nickname Donkey, right? For his laugh and for being a jackass. Um, yeah, nobody was laughing at the end. Yeah, nobody laughed at the end. And I think it's important to take that lesson from it um, and not just from a political standpoint, from just a, a human uh, level standpoint, because you you never really truly know what somebody is going through or what somebody is capable of. Um, and the other important lesson to draw from it, too, is there was an instance that we didn't really get to go over. Um, but there was a point where <clears throat> Pinochet uh, was in control of this uh, this camp that was basically uh, an internment camp for for leftists, and this was before Allende had become president, mind you. Allende was a senator and visited this camp, and he's going around and he's talking to these prisoners, and there's a bump in at some point, and Pinochet uh, makes a either direct or indirect threat, saying like, "I want to shoot that fucking guy in the head." Like, I don't like him. He's an asshole. I want to fucking kill him. And I don't know if it was a case of Allende just, like, not remembering that because, you know, he was a politician and, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on. He just never thought of it. Or if it was one of those instances where he's like, oh, he was just, you know, heated and it was in the moment. But it's an important lesson to understand that uh, when people do say certain things, um, it, yes, it is important to give redemption. However, uh, when people make certain comments or when they make certain statements, make sure that you listen. All right. It, it's important to uh, not just hear somebody, but it's important to listen because uh, often uh, not just their fate is going to be spoken within the words they say, but your fate as well, depending on what choices you make. So I just think those are important things to think about when you listen to the story and try to digest it overall. Absolutely. And like her said, keep those things in mind. Keep in mind what we've talked about throughout the series with the similar things that we're talking about over and over again. And I, I thought Chile was a great way to, to bring those themes together. And I think with the last couple episodes that we'll be doing in the series here, I think we are getting close to the end um, with what we're trying to do with Latin America. I think you'll see more of these dirty wars come to light if that's the kind of thing that interests you the most. But you'll also see maybe stories like we had mentioned about, you know, the protest and the, and the black cop killer stories that can, that can help you feel a little bit better about the current situation and about what's going on as well. And I promise towards the end, we'll talk a little bit more about left success stories when it comes to, to current politics and current people in power, but also about how those are always under threat as well. And, and Hirsch, I know for the next episode, we're going to be focused on another one of the, the fun episodes. And uh, we got people have another week if they want to check out those Fear Street movies. And uh, we'll be moving on to that. Yes, which is going to be a lot of fun. I know I've been telling my brother, basically anybody who's come uh, to my streams or to my Discord or talk to me in person. Fear Street is an obsession. Um, so I'm very much looking forward to that. 
Uh, we're also going to be talking about some uh, current events that are going on, whether it be a couple sports topics, even a couple uh, small political notes of things that are going on. So definitely uh, a lot of fun to be had uh, for the next episode. Yeah, and there's some interesting reading that I've had going on or a couple of interesting shows I've been watching I want to bring up too. So it'll be a fun episode. Indeed. Um, and, and before we go, I want to say too, uh, I think the closer that we get towards the end of the Latin American series that we've done, which um, I admit has been a lot of fun and it has been uh, very informative and has helped expand uh, a lot of my ideology. Um, I think when we do get out of this, uh, this era in this region, I think um, before we necessarily focus on another specific region, um, we might be doing a couple uh, deep dive episodes into specifics, uh, just to give a few examples, things that I've talked about in the past, uh, doing a uh, special episode going and talking about the Jim Crow laws and the civil rights movement itself, um, labor unions, um, things of that nature. I, I, I think it's really important to, uh, to have a discussion and to offer online a discussion from a from a leftist thought on these subjects because it's really hard to find um and, and again anything anything you search for on youtube is, is at worst uh, or at best excuse me like centrist you know wishy-washy nonsense for the most part or um right-wing propaganda in the most extreme sense yeah and and again you know the reason that we're doing these episodes it's not necessarily to um motivate for change we had talked about this earlier with uh with um looking back in history it's not necessarily to try to change the world or make it 100 percent better um but i will say the one hope that i have i can't speak for steve but the one hope i have is to inspire some of you listening to um start expanding uh your historical knowledge and some of your context whether it be through history or politics or any other socioeconomic status um that, that may take place because uh, I don't know if you've looked around lately in the world, but now more than ever, um, the idea of identity is very important. And it is important now, especially with the acceleration of technology, that we start understanding exactly where we stand and what our uh, moral beliefs are. No, absolutely. And like you had mentioned, Hirsch, it's about having a perspective. And we are offering our, our certain perspective from a political point of view, but we're just hoping that that ends up helping other people form a perspective that can, you know, help them understand what's going on in current times. Right. Well, I think I think that about wraps it up for this episode, unless there was anything oh, else. I just had a quick thing I was going to update on is that um, – one, two of the things I was going to talk about next week, I was going to give people a chance and, and maybe you a chance too to check out because I thought it might help when we're talking about things is um, number one is kind of on a lighter note. Have you seen the, the He-Man series that's on Netflix? Nope, but I plan on watching that soon. I heard about it. I finished it up today. Fucking check it out, dude. Like pretty good. It's really good. It's really good. I don't know. If, I don't know. You're a little bit younger, so you might not have the same connection to He-Man that I did growing up as a little bit older of a millennial. He-Man was like really big in my childhood. I had all the action figures and all that kind of shit. But like they do a really good job of, of updating it and bringing a new idea to the story. 
and some of the voice talent is pretty fun. Like the people will talk about it more in the next episode. The people they're able to to get in, they have Lena Headey, you know, from Game of Thrones. She's Evil Lynn. Uh, Mark Hamill is Skeletor. Um, Sarah Michelle Gellar is uh, Tila. So like, That's they have awesome. a lot of cool. Yeah, they, and the guy who plays Orko actually is on a podcast I listen to. Uh, Griffin Newman. He's on the uh, uh, Blank Check podcast I listen to. That's really fun. And then, so yeah, check out the He-Man series on Netflix. Kevin Smith's actually written and a producer on it. it I, he's been talking about being excited to work on it for a while. And then the other thing I was able to find is this um, really interesting article about a guy who was grieving for his um, fiance who had passed away eight years before. And he is able to access this AI program where he was able to program her, her writing into the computer program and then have a chat with his dead girlfriend. Um, it's a really interesting article, really brings up some interesting ideas about AI, but it was also just kind of touching in different ways too, where this guy was obviously going through some grief and some pain, and it was a way of him to deal with it using AI technology, but also the way the AI is, is structured and the way it's brought up it's really kind of um, eye-opening to the ideas that these engineers and these these um, programmers are putting AI programs and other stuff out there without realizing what the possible morality is going to be. And <coughs> I I wish I could find the exact article name right now, but if you type in like um, AI dead girlfriend, the guy's name was Joshua, and I believe I was able to find out. Uh, based on her name. Let me double check her name really quick here. Um, do, 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 do. I think her name was Jessica. So if you type in AI Jessica, you should be able to find uh, the original article I was talking about. And it's from like, I believe San Francisco Chronicle. Yeah, the San Francisco Chronicle. Um, the headline is, you know, he couldn't get over his fiance's death. So he brought her back to life. And they, if you can look at it on a desktop, but you can even look at it on your phone, they have a really interesting way of putting the article graphics into place where they have like a like script from a computer and that kind of thing. Um, it's going to make it look like there's a paywall because it'll have you click on like an exit button, but there is no paywall. You can check out the article for free. Like I said, I encourage you to check out San Francisco Chronicle, Jessica Simulation, um, about artificial intelligence. It's something I want to bring up, Hirsch, and if you have a chance, I think it'll be a really cool discussion. Yeah. Definitely, it's like uh, some Black Mirror stuff. Um, it, it, well, they even have the guy who made the program. He even designed a AI after the character from her, you know, with uh, Yaquin Phoenix. Mm -hmm. And so, like, uh, yeah, it's got some interesting stuff to talk about. All right. Well, it sounds like we have an, uh, a very fun and a very uh, packed episode for next week on the, uh, I guess you could say the fun episode, the freestyle episode. Um I, I'll just say thank you to everybody who's been listening, everybody who continues to support the podcast. Um, things are getting down to the nitty gritty. Um, just understand that after this year, things with the podcast are going to be, uh, I guess you could say, glowing up. We're going we're gonna to hit a bit of a glow up after the end of this year. We're going to be doing a lot of different changes to the podcast. All good, I assure you. Um, Looking into things such as uh, video capabilities and uh, even featuring a, a guest from time to time. 
So if those are things that interest you, by all means, let us know. We're going to start uh, engaging a little bit more. I might even start setting up a Discord specifically for all our fans and our fellow history and political nerd aficionados. So if that's something interested you, contact Stu or myself. You can always find me on Twitter, Instagram, Stone Samurai, or at Hirsch815. Either one, you'll be able to find me. And my brother, you can find him at? Uh, Steven underscore more. And that'll be on Twitter. And you can contact him there. Um, you'll see him on some of my posts every once in a while as well. So either way, make sure to check us out. Uh, get into contact. Oh, before I forget, I just want to say to anybody who might be listening, um, the correct way to say aluminum is aluminum. So just put that out there. Aluminium. Yeah. I, you know, I, some, of, some of my OGs are going to understand why I wanted to put this at the end. Um, <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, on behalf of Stu and myself, thank you all for listening. Thank you for the continued support. We will see you uh, next Tuesday. Most likely, we might have to push it back a day, but most likely it's going to be Tuesday. For yeah, Tuesday another... should work. Okay, well, there you have it. Next Tuesday, we're going to be doing a freestyle episode. We're going to be talking about uh, artificial intelligence. Um, we're going to be talking about some current topics, and then we're doing a deep dive review and uh, future what to expect on the Fear Street Horror series. Until next time, love, peace, chicken grease, and make sure to wash your hands and wipe your butt. Peace.